at Jared, we know devotion isn't a once a year occasion. And once the flowers have wilted and the chocolates have disappeared, you'll still want them to know how much you care. Dare to give a gift that lasts this Valentine's Day with our incredible selection of jewelry. From delicate rose gold to bold black diamonds, Jared has hundreds of pieces under $299 and exclusive collections you won't find anywhere else. Shop online or find a store near you at jared.com and dare to be devoted. Another edition of Troy Noons is an absolute podcast. I'm your host, as always, John Casillo, and with me today is Dan Lyons. Hello, everyone. Happy uh, we did a basketball thing well week. We did a basketball thing very well, actually. Uh, yes. If you've lived under a rock or haven't paid attention to Syracuse, which then I guess you're a disloyal idiot, um, Syracuse knocked off Duke at Cameron Indoor. Uh, you can question whatever you want about the end of the game. We've all been on the other end of that against Duke in Cameron. I don't care. <laughs> we win. Duke loses. All is right. And Syracuse suddenly looks um, very, very good, um, even if flawed, um, once again, just as we saw in the beginning of the season, Dan. I think Syracuse is almost becoming the official uh, basketball team of the 2015-16 college basketball season um, in terms of looks pretty good but flawed. Like, the season makes no sense. Syracuse makes little sense. Um, But I agree. I mean, there's no – no one's apologizing for the win yesterday. Uh, Obviously, there were the two – I guess you call them controversial, but um, I don't see a a universe in which – case the Malachi Richardson bumps into Matt Jones play it's called a foul and I don't you know if you're calling a foul on the the very late heave at the buzzer um that's pretty iffy too uh though Trevor Cooney should not have tried to give that foul as late as he did um but overall I mean I I went and crunched the numbers that night because I couldn't go to sleep um pretty much like 78 percent of the teams that have won at Cameron uh, during a year have gone on to make the tournament. Um, the the asterisk to that is that most of those teams weren't really on the bubble, uh, and there were a couple of recent bubble-ish teams that didn't make the tournament, but overall it's a pretty good indicator that a team is both uh, good enough to beat a Duke team there, which there are many years where Duke has not lost to Cameron at all, and uh, that the team is good enough to make, make a run to the tournament. So I think we're in much better position, and uh, most of the metrics will will lend to that as well. Yeah, I was taking a look at that spreadsheet you had put up, and the weird thing to me was that Miami's done it, what, twice in the last four seasons, which is yeah, weird. Yeah, uh, 2012 and 2015, let me actually pull it up. Um, 2012 and 2015, they both finished, They both beat Duke uh, at Cameron, both missed the tournament, um, and I think there was a both like 19 win teams-ish. Uh, I have it open now. So, yeah, the the, the recent, um, I did the, I went back through all of the, uh, 64 plus team tournament era uh, games, um, and there were 40. Dudes lost at Cameron 42 times in that time span, and the teams that did not make the tournament were uh, a 14 and 13 1985 Wake Forest team, 95 Clemson, 95 NC State. That was the year where Coach K went out with a uh, he had surgery and Duke just fell to fell to shit um, and lost a lot at Cameron. Um, then there's 96 Illinois, 97 Michigan, 05 Maryland, 07 FSU, 2012 Miami, and 2015 Miami. That's the list. So most teams that went at Cameron make the tournament. Um, most of those teams are, I think, like 
two thirds of those teams are like top four seeds, which is probably a lot to ask of Syracuse now. But overall, like Syracuse joined the list of a lot of one seeds and a lot of very good teams. Yeah, and you know, I'll, I'll take being in that company. I mean, I don't think that that we're out of the woods yet in terms of being a bubble team, even making the tournament. Um, or, I mean, who knows? Like, you know, you and I were talking about in the uh, the very brief pre-show. Uh, the solution to every problem in, in college sports or any sports is win. Just you don't have to worry about what everybody else is doing. You don't have to worry about what your resume looks like. If you keep winning games, you're going to get into the tournament. You're going to go further. Um, and it seems like Syracuse is, is pretty well situated um, to do that, at least right now. Um, I know Seth Greenberg uh, over on ESPN was talking about SU's uh, bubble profile and really, really uh, was kind of singing their praises because you know you don't want to you don't want to hate on Hop. Um, but you do want to point out at the same time that uh, Syracuse's actual coach um, this season, Jim Beheim, is nine and two um, with three wins over ranked teams, um, and, and I don't think that's going to be discarded. I think some people are skeptical about how much the committee actually puts stock into it. Um, I personally think that while it's going to play a, a role, it's not going to play. I don't think that is going to be the thing that makes or breaks. But if we, you know, we keep winning, if we play at a rate that we should, and we win at a rate that we should. Um, I, I think that that's going to weigh it's going to weigh well in, in SU's favor if you know Beheim has three or four ranked wins um, on the resume um, versus you know the the kind of rough stretch we had um, with, with some difficulty obviously um, uh, under Hopkins. Yeah, and the I, someone from the committee I forget who it was um, said like went on the record to say that they will take it into account. Now, how much they do is is you know a question, but um, if you break down the resume into like those two parts, it, it really is interesting because Syracuse with Bayheim, I think overall Syracuse has five wins over top 100 RPI teams, and that includes like St. Bonaventure, who's sneaky, pretty good this year, and Wake, who is like we said after we won that game, like they looked awful, but they're not awful. Um, but with Bayheim, I mean Syracuse has went at Cameron, which I think by the end of the year will look way better than it does now because I think with Emil Jefferson. Uh, healthy that's a top 15 team and um they're you know people have a it's hard for everyone to keep track of when everyone with an injury was out and played and what teams won games shorthanded or lost games shorthanded so i think just at a, a long view a win at duke it looks good no matter what um and that duke team will be fine by the end of the year and then the win over texas a&m like looks great because they're number I think eight in the coaches poll and 10 in the AP and they look like the best team in the SEC right now so uh and those were both with Bayheim on the bench so um it'll be interesting to see what how they weigh things but if the Bayheim factor plays at least like really any kind of factor in their decision making uh it looked really good for Syracuse and we can worry about the long-term repercussions down the line but in terms of making the tournament this year um I think, you know, we have to feel better than we did a week ago, a week ago where we had two wins, but you know, BC and Wake only count for so much. Duke is a big one. No, absolutely. And you know, you look at the, the upcoming schedule. I mean, Virginia is going to be a tough game coming up if it's played on Saturday. We'll see what, what weather holds, but you know, looking at everything else, um, there, there's a nice stretch in there where we could conceivably not only get over 500 in league play, but get a few games over 500. Um, I think the key is for SU to finish at least 9-9 nine and nine in league play. Obviously, they already racked up that Duke win. Another upset against one of the other favorite teams uh, would be 
uh, I, I'm not going to say sealed. I think if they win the games as opposed to and pull another upset, it'd be very hard to count out Syracuse, especially if you look at you know the the Hopkins versus Bayheim split. Um, the fact that A&M keeps winning it can only be seen as a net positive for us. You know, like you said, when when Jefferson gets back for Duke, that's another positive. I think UConn, um, obviously SMU is the class of that league, and it won't matter um, because they won't be playing in a in the league tournament, and they won't be playing in the NCAA's either. Um, so UConn could very well, um, you know, find themselves as a top five seed or so um, themselves. Like this is you're looking at three really notable wins away from the Carrier Dome, um, and that's not that's not something you can typically even say about a Syracuse team. Um, so I, I think that that's going to be something, you know, held by the committee. I think it was OU's um, AD that, that that had mentioned it, um, that, you know, the Bayheim factor was going to be weighed. Um, but, yeah, Syracuse is, is not out of the woods again, but it is looking much, much better, uh, and, and you have to like. And I'm, I'm going to mention it again because nobody seems to buy in on the blog. Um, the Clemson loss is not going to hurt us. No, Clemson. Clemson looks like a, you know, they they look like a pretty decent shot to be a tournament team right now. I mean, they have they obviously just lost the other day to um, who beat them? Uh, oh, Virginia, which was by seven on the road. That's not a bad loss at all. But Clemson, I mean, they started kind of slow, but they've really turned into something. And Jaron Blossom came looks like an All ACC performer, which you know he's been a nice player for them for a couple of years, but. It does, you know, he wasn't anything like that. And Landry Noko uh, looks like a pretty, you know, a force inside for them um, type of center that a lot of people don't have. So they're a nice little team. Um, and losing to them by one in overtime, like you said, uh, probably won't be the thing that keeps Syracuse out of the tournament if they don't make it. Yeah, I mean, that that was a, a game they should have won, obviously. But at the end of the day, you know, Syracuse still controls its own destiny like most other teams in the country. You keep winning, you have a shot. And, and that's all that matters. I think that, you know, there's going to be a crowded bubble. It's going to be a lot of ACC teams on it. Um, but I, I think these things will sort themselves out. It seems very unlikely, even in a wacky season like this, and we can go into that in a sec, um, that, you know, the, the bubble comes down to, to six ACC teams, all with very similar resumes. That 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 would just be too, too much of a statistical anomaly um, to, to really believe in right now. Yeah, I think it's done. A, it, it's kind of hard to get a beat on it so far, but it's the the Big Twelve. I feel like getting most of the press because they have the three teams right at the top. But I think the ACC, uh, we've talked about it for a couple of weeks now. Like aside from BC, there it's a pretty really solid lead top to bottom. Maybe no great team aside from North Carolina if they stay healthy, um, but a lot of pretty good to good teams. So I, I feel like uh, depending on what the selection committee feels about the league, it's either going to be a league where it's like six or seven teams or it could be a year where you get like 10, 11, like we saw with some of those old big East, um, some of those old big East years down the stretch. Um, I don't know. I, I'm a little afraid of, of uh, the, the ACC cannibalizing on itself and everyone just looking too mediocre and a lot of teams getting left out. But um, hopefully we are the ones doing the eat, the eating and not being uh, eaten in that scenario. Oh, of course. And, and I think, you know, a lot of this too depends and, we said this a little bit last week, like Syracuse isn't used to sitting on the bubble and things like that. Um, we just haven't done it in a few years. Uh, and and the, the interesting thing this time around is going to be, you know, we're back to, I think, where we were in, in, in 06, 07 or so, 
you know, seeing how many how many tournament favorites win and and all that. Um, I think in, in a year like what we're seeing, you know, in 2015-16, where you really can't bet on anything. I mean, every night, you know, one or two ranked teams are losing uh, to unranked teams um, at home, and it's 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 wild. It's I mean, it happened again tonight, uh, where you know West Virginia and Kansas went down in a brutal Big 12. I mean, right now I'm watching the Baylor game, and Baylor and Kansas State are battling it out in double overtime. Baylor's ranked. Like, there's just a lot. Um, there's a lot of parity, and, and it's not just the big leagues either. Um, it, it's also a lot of the smaller leagues. And you look at there's actually a really solid um, number of uh, mid majors and low majors that have you know sizable resumes. I mean, you look at I think Monmouth is a perfect example of a low major who um, really stacked its its non-conference resume. And you know, usually if you get feasted on whatever, it kind of hurts you for any large bid. But when you win those games, and, and Monmouth managed to win a bunch of them, um, you suddenly have a very, very nice resume, um, win or lose your league. But, you know, Syracuse, not used to this again, as, as we spent most of the last eight or nine years kind of, you know, hanging around higher seeds. Um, we're going to have to be rooting for all those tournament favorites, um, even more so than normal this year. Yeah, uh, and, and just about the craziness, I'm looking down at stores now, Texas, uh, like you said, beat West Virginia. Michigan State lost again to Nebraska, who's not very good at all. Um, uh, Villanova and Seton Hall, and Seton Hall's not bad, but they're they're in a kind of a dogfight right now. Two point game with nine minutes left. DePaul beat this, Marquette tonight. DePaul won a game. <laughs> um, yeah, this this season, like if you guys haven't been paying attention, if you've kind of been sucked into the NFL or college football, like obviously I love those things too. But this college basketball season. Like it's it's only November, so it's early to say. In March, you know, it, every year it's either like totally crazy or kind of predictable, um, and that kind of defines the year. This year has been maybe the craziest regular season through November, through January 20th that I can remember. It's it's insane how many top five teams. Have, I think it's like 19 top five teams have lost already this year or something. It's it's bizarre. Yeah, I think the numbers are around there. I know it's was it five top. Five number one seeds have already lost. I think we're gonna. Yeah. I think this is gonna be the first year, maybe ever, we see a, a one seed with probably four or five losses. It could be all the one seeds could have four or five losses at this point. I mean, I don't. I I, I could poke a hole in every single um, one of probably the top ten teams in the country, especially because you know they all have losses to, to look at, um, and not just one. It's a handful of them. Like last year. Kentucky was obviously the class of the country, but also benefited from a very easy SEC schedule. And, and you saw them fall victim, victim to some things, but, you know, it's one thing to fall victim. It's another thing to actually lose because of them. And uh, it, it took a, a very, very good Wisconsin team laden with seniors um, to knock them off in the Final Four. Uh, this year, you're just seeing, no matter who gets to that top line, there's just something... Each one has just a big weakness, and... and you know, we we talked about it. we talk about it every year. I feel it's just the tournament's a matchup game, um, by and large, especially because of how big the tournament's gotten and because of how deep the country's gotten in terms of talent. And you know, some of these ones, uh, and I'm not going to start playing you know 16 seed wins this year, but some of these ones match up with the wrong team. Um, they all have a wrong team that we're going to see clearly uh, come come March. Uh, it, it's going to be very very intriguing um, to see all this play out. Yeah, those uh, the eight nine games, uh, the second round games for the ones are going to be mighty interesting because I just don't think there's that much separation 
this year. And you're and you've seen like eight, nine type teams beat ones already. So like we said, there's, there's been five ones go down so far. So buckle up. Uh, March is right around the corner. It's actually like it feels like March already with how these games have played out. Um, it's nice to have a good uh, a good college basketball season. I feel like we've had some very predictable ones as of late, and this regular season just is anything but. So nice to get uh, some craziness injected early, especially because craziness, you know, kind of helps Syracuse this year because things started so poorly. Yeah, you know how uh, the one thing I think that started to been ad- been addressed around the country, but not necessarily in earnest, is. Um, how much do you think we can attribute that to the 30-second shot clock and, and whether or not coaches and teams have been able to adapt? I mean, um, you see it sometimes in players um, when they first get to the pros that there's an adaptation that needs to happen um, when it comes to the shot clock. But um, for, for all these college basketball players, I mean, yes, it's, it's just a young game in general because of the one-and-done rule. But do, do you think that there are certain teams or programs or, or anything or players maybe that – that have struggled to, to adapt a little bit um, if they play a slower-style offense? Um, I haven't noticed it too much. I mean, at the top of the uh, the polls, like, it seems like faster teams are generally playing better. Oklahoma plays fast. UNC is always athletic. Kansas plays at a pretty good pace. Villanova, Xavier. Um, so I don't know if it's benefiting those teams. Um, I do think, like, having watched the game, I think the games are a little more pleasing to watch. But um, – I don't know that I've noticed, uh, like, slower teams struggle. I mean, Virginia's had a weird couple weeks, but they were really hot to start the year. Um, And there's a couple other teams that have been pretty good that play at a slower pace. But it seems like this year the faster-paced teams have been more successful. I just don't know if that's a product of those just being the better teams this year or if the 30 seconds has had a major impact. Um, I don't know. Having watched a bunch of games, I don't know that I'd contribute, I'd attribute it to that too much, but um, I will say as a fan, I think I've enjoyed it a lot more than what it's been in the last couple of years. You definitely see a little more running, more uh, deliberate offense than what we've seen in years past where teams are just, you know, eating chunks of time, dribbling the ball up at the top of the key. Yeah. You know, I, I, and I've been noted on this podcast that I kind of almost completely stopped watching uh, college basketball's regular season outside of Syracuse games. The last couple of years because of how much of a crawl and a slog it became. Um, luckily, there's a very good, um, very competitive NBA product out there outside of whatever game the Warriors are playing in that night. Um, but yeah, I, I think what I've noticed more than the offensive end um, is on the defensive end is you're seeing you're not seeing bad defenses rewarded, but you're seeing very good defenses rewarded in that um, I, I think what we saw with the zone is that the longer shot clock you know, that final five seconds, and we never had the numbers completely, but in those final five seconds, that would be when the defense finally wore down um, and and offenses were able to set up, you know, these BS um, corner threes or or just being able to cut through the lane after not being able to do so for the first 30-plus seconds. Um, So I think you're seeing a lot of, I mean, in the ACC alone, I think there's, what, five defenses that are letting up less than 70 points a game. Um, and and I think it's 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 the, it's the typical sub uh, suspects. You know, it's it's Virginia, it's Syracuse, it's uh, Louisville, um, and some others. But you're seeing those teams rewarded because of the the, the shot clock isn't giving bad shooting teams time. Um, it's it's all it's helping out offensive rebounding teams, obviously. But I think uh, the the penalizing bad shooting teams um, who just you you know can't just keep tiring out a defense. Um, I, I think is one of the best 
products of it, and it actually makes a lot of these kids uh, much better suited for the pro game long term. Yeah, it rewards um, good shot selection or rewards ball movement, and it's not just, you know, wait till five seconds left, chuck something up, et cetera. I also feel like we've seen less, like, long drawn-out foul fest at the, uh, down the stretch. I feel like things have been officiated, if not a little more loosely, it's just um, – Obviously, there are individual uh, plays where really bad calls have been made. Last night, there was, or Monday night, there was definitely one on um, the what was who was it that got called for the charge? Benajay, the third foul on him. Oh yeah, that was deplorable, was awful. But overall, like I feel like we don't see quite as much of like get the ball inside and they just call a foul, anticipatory fouls. Obviously, it still happens, but a lot less, game, fewer games are being decided like exclusively on the free throw line, which is nice, at least based on what I've seen. Um, and that's also a thing as a Syracuse fan that I'm welcome because our team's awful at it. <laughs> I guess uh, moving a little bit um, into this weekend's game, again, assuming it happens, um, one, can we give Virginia their third consecutive 69-62 game? Um, and two, do you think that the SU's kind of recent, I wouldn't say offensive resurgence, but at least I want to say they've they found a little, little bit more of a rhythm um, under Bayheim in the last probably couple weeks. Um, but do you think that, that, that we stand a chance against Virginia? Or is this a Virginia team that, that is about to hit its stride um, as we get to the meat of the ACC schedule? Um, I think it's a good Virginia team. Obviously, they've struggled a bit recently. Um, they have three losses in the last five games. Virginia Tech, which seemed like a weird loss at the time, and I think they're still better than the Hokies, but the Hokies have had some shown some life recently. Um, FSU is super talented and not all that uh, consistent. They're getting destroyed by Louisville. And Georgia Tech is not very good, but again, like there's no one that's truly awful in the ACC except for BC. Um, and even they tested Miami tonight. Yeah, they're working on Miami. You know, they're up 11 now. It's fine. Miami's up 11. Um, yeah, so I think Virginia's good. I don't think they're as good as they have been the last two years, but um, I think it's interesting to see how uh, we play them with the new shot plot because they've done like their Virginia thing to Syracuse real bad the last couple of years, um, especially like down the stretch of games. Um, but talking about going back to your, um, you know, you brought up that the offense looks better. I don't know what's done in the Malachi Richardson, but he's been so good. Um, the last, what, five, six games. And uh, I think that'll be big against Virginia. They play that pack line defense. Um, if Malachi can hit some, some shots from the outside, that's huge. Uh, I think, obviously, Cooney continuing to be a factor will be nice. So I, I think we definitely have a chance. Um, I think any game against Virginia could end 62 uh, no matter who it is, because Virginia doesn't often let up more than that. Um, and they also don't store more than that all that often. Um, I don't know that I, you know, give us a, a tremendous chance to go down there and win, but I don't know that winning at a uh, winning in Charlottesville is all that much uh, tougher than winning at Duke, except that Virginia is healthier uh, right now than the Blue Devils are. Um, but I think it, it's hard to not be encouraged by how Syracuse has looked the last three games. Uh, so yeah, why not? Yeah, you know, I think we stand a chance. I mean, I said it before the Duke game, you did too. Like, we stood a chance because of the, the minimal rotation. I mean, if there was one team that had a, a, a lesser rotation than, than SU, it was Duke. Um, 
I think Virginia um, doesn't really pose that same issue for themselves because I think they have a lot of quality rebounders. They have some size. Um, doesn't seal a win, um, obviously. You know, if Syracuse is going to make the sort of mistakes they made against Duke um, early and late, um, I, I don't see them being able to pull off a win. Um, I know SU has a little bit more rest, but that I don't really think. I think you know, once you get down to maybe a matter of a day or so, it, it's incremental. It doesn't really matter. Um, I, I, do, I, I think Virginia is an interesting team because, you know, this is a Virginia team that has lost to Florida, lost three road games, but Florida State, Virginia Tech, Georgia Tech. Um, Florida State was supposed to be a, a top 25 caliber squad this year. That hasn't been the case. I know right now they're getting absolutely smoked by Louisville. Um, I, I think Georgia Tech is not good, but again, like you said, not bad. Um, this Virginia group looks like they're probably going to lose seven or eight games this year, which, again, not bad. It, it, it's, they're not a bad team. It's just when you look at what they've done previously, um, they just don't, they're not the same level of suffocating. And maybe it is a, a product of the shot clock. Um, I mean, I, I just haven't watched the games closely enough to really diagnose it if that's the case. Um, I'm not overly optimistic for this weekend, however, and, and that's probably a bummer to a lot of people here who are who are banking on SU, you know, just riding that momentum to reel off a, a couple big wins in a row. Yeah, I think um, the interesting factor with them, uh, I'm really interested to see how Virginia tries to attack the zone. I feel like they've done a really nice job of doing the, you know, get the ball to the high post, kick, you know, kick out to the to the shooters. Um, get the ball to uh, like the, the the play that UNC ran um, over and over. They probably they don't have the, quite the same big men that the Tar Heels do, but I think they've done a nice job of like doing the fundamental things that teams do to beat the zone. Um, but overall, the team, I mean, they shoot 40% from three. Uh, and I was actually, I'm just looking through the stats now. London Parentes, who's a very good point guard. Um, but hasn't been like a crazy shooter the last couple of years. I, I saw he was shooting 56%, and I thought that was like, oh, he's just not shooting the ball this year, so he's just made a, a high percentage. No, he's really shooting like 55.6% from three, and like he took nine threes against Virginia Tech and made seven, and he oh, went four for seven in his FSU. Like, this is terrifying. Um, and I haven't watched that much Virginia this year. Um, but With they good have, reason. <laughs> Yeah, well, I actually don't mind watching Virginia. I think, you know, I appreciate what they do, even if it's not the, the most fun thing to watch. But um, they do have a really nice mix of players uh, and a nice mix to beat Syracuse. They have uh, two really quality post guys in Mike Tobin and Anthony Gill. They have Malcolm Brogdon, who's like the, the do-it-all uh, dynamic forward. They have Parentes, uh, like I said, who apparently is like Steph Curry now, but also a really solid, consistent point guard. And they have some nice shooters off the bench, so... Um, it's a well-crafted roster, I think. I just don't know that they, they, they don't seem to have, like, that X factor uh, that they have in years past. And, like, maybe it is the part, partly, uh, partially the shot clock. Maybe they're just kind of regressing to the mean a bit. Um, but I think it's still a very dangerous team. Yeah, a- absolutely. Um, the one thing we did, and I think we'll do before halftime, is um, this is something you and I talked about when hire was first made, and I think it's now coming to fruition, which is crazy. Um Virginia Tech, uh, Buzz Williams is a good coach. I know we hate him. I know he, some, he somehow has our number no matter who's coached on that, that game we had to face them in the second round. Um, for so many reasons. For, for so many reasons. We've discussed it here before. I, I don't want to keep belaboring the point. 
but um, that was BS. Buzz has our number. Um, also goes to show that Marquette is for the most part a trash program uh, <laughs> that, that just happened to, to you know hit on two straight coaches. Um, and now you look at the, the state of them in a, in a retooled beast. Are we saying that Tom Crean is a coach that can be like that can be a hit? <laughs> no, no. Tom Crean. Tom Crean was a successful head coach. He was at, at, a successful head coach at a then mid-major program. He had Dwayne Wade, and uh, that's that's it. That's the story. <laughs> Dwayne Wade's good. I think that's the Tom Crean. Story. If you have Dwayne Wade, you will win some basketball games. You're Dwayne Wade, and you are able to lure it over a mid-major program and get a very lucky trip to the Final Four. Um, and yeah, that'll that'll do it, and that you can you can hit your hit your ride to that rocket, um, and then you know just at the same time summarily burn Indiana basketball to the ground even more than they were already. So I mean, no, we're not at those depths yet. Um, I always love seeing Indiana basketball lose. I like seeing Marquette basketball lose as well. So uh, Tom Crean and Buzz Williams, we'll we'll see what happens at Virginia Tech, um, have done their jobs and then some. I actually have nothing inherently against Indiana, um, aside from their fans were pretty annoying down at the uh, Sweet 16 when we ripped their heart out and, and fed it to them. Um, and they all wear those stupid striped pants. Uh, <laughs> like, all of them wear those. And, like, they're warming up for the game. Uh, it's hilarious. But um, just Tom Crean. Watching Tom Crean lose is, is one of life's great joys. Well, because the Crean face always shows up. and it's So always... many, so many faces. <laughs> so is it the light to watch. It's amazing to me that, that the Big Ten has been able to rise. I think and I think this is just a weird part in general for the Big Ten football and basketball. In football, the Big Ten has largely been able to rise without Michigan really being a factor, um, except for two of the last, like, six years, uh, last season, and then the one season Brady Hoke, you know, screwed over the Hokies and the Sugar Bowl. Um, on the basketball front, um, the Big Ten has really surged um, and is probably neck and neck um, with the ACC, um, you know, from from a talent standpoint, um, but but that's largely without Indiana's help. And and considering Indiana was was very very you know pretty much its entire existence, that the strength of the Big Ten, and then it had assistance from Michigan State, from Ohio State, Michigan, others at various points. Um, it's it's crazy to me how Indiana's been down for so long now, and and uh, I mean outside of that one seed they had, and we knocked them off. Um, they've largely been down for a very long time, um, and, and the Big Ten's still been able to improve without them. Yeah, it's just bizarre, and it's, it, it doesn't make a ton of sense because, like, they've recruited incredibly well. That team this year has a lot of talent, and they're actually playing pretty well recently, but it's just funny how every time it quite, you know, uh, it kind of looks like uh, they're, you know, getting ready to, to win consistently, even even the the year where they were the one seed and we beat them, it's just they just fall back to earth in such a big way, and it all goes back to Crean, um, and then Crean just does just enough to to keep himself there, which is fun too. Like it wouldn't be as much fun if Crean had just gotten fired three years ago, but his constant like yo-yoing between uh, job securities and you know being at the top of the college basketball world and then falling back to earth and climbing back up like Sisyphus. It's it's just a fun thing to watch, and and their fans just are so, like they're very hard to they they swing probably more than ours even do in terms of their feelings about the team. 
I feel like Indiana basketball fans are the Nebraska football fans of college basketball. Um, it's tough. Nebraska football fan. I feel like Nebraska football fans are like too far removed at this point. Like for, I think if they had come closer to like actual national relevance, maybe. Fair. But now they're just like trying to get back to like ten wins. That's that's fair. We'll we'll, we'll find a comparison for you yet. Nebraska and Indiana. I'll think of it as we go on. <laughs> and on that note, it is halftime um, here at the podcast. As always, we uh, we discuss what we've been drinking. So, Dan, Spill, what do you uh, what do you drink last weekend? Uh, not a ton of uh, exciting uh, new things, but the one thing I did try, which I hadn't had before, which was during the Syracuse Duke game um, from Shipyard, who uh, I haven't had a lot of stuff from them except for their pumpkin, which is wonderful. Um, they have a an IPA. Uh, little horror of hops, which was quite good. Um, it was almost, you know, a bit of a like a standard American pale ale. Um, it obviously had like the, the hoppy, you know, IPA bitterness, but uh, was nice and drinkable and had a very clean aftertaste. Not, not, you know, didn't the bitterness didn't like linger like crazy too long. So um, that was like the one thing that I tried, which was uh, I could definitely recommend as a a more drinkable IPA for those who aren't, you know huge fans of the of the uh that beer type um Ooh. that might be one that could uh kind of ease you into it fair enough fair enough um what was i drinking i uh i had four calling birds it's a it's a strong ale a belton strong ale from the brewery it's from four years ago at this point they had their annual holiday where they run through the uh 12 days of christmas so that was uh, four also had a mash the uh, bourbon barrel aged barley wine uh, from last year uh, from the brewery. Um, went to a Kings game over at the Staples Center and uh, beforehand got to check out the uh, Beer Camp Tropical IPA from Sierra Nevada. Uh, that'll be featured in the uh, Beer Camp Across America box later this year. Hoping to uh, to get to the um, what's it called festival that they have going on in LA. They're going to have it at five other spots. Closest to you is Boston, I think, Dan. Which is uh, probably not, not feasible. Not all that close to me. No, <laughs> not all that close at all. <laughs> Some other things that I drank. I uh, went down to Beachwood uh, Barbecue and Brewing. Um, had Amalgamator, which is always an excellent IPA from them. Um, had Tart Simpson. Uh, it's a very, uh, it's a mildly tart Berliner Weiss. Uh, really got a lot out of that one. Um, also had uh, Joint Venture, uh, Pizza Port, and Pizza Port, which is down in, well, they have Carlsbad location, and I usually end up at the San Clemente one because if there's one I'm going to, that's only like an hour and a half away versus the rest that are much further. Um, so Pizza Fork comboed with uh, Beachwood for a joint venture IPA. Um, nice collaboration. Um, had this Sour Future uh, from Smog City the other night. It's uh, an Ode Bruin, um, so kind of like a you know mildly sour brown uh, that was very good. And also had uh, Sap from Treehouse Brewing in Boston. Well, not Boston, but the Massachusetts area. Um, it was originally a Christmas IPA, and now it gets brewed a little bit more often. Still very, very good. Um, so, yeah, that was my uh, my full roster of beers for the past almost week. A little Northeastern flavor for you this week. Yeah, uh, that happens sometimes. It's kind of weird. Uh, that's what happens when I ship a decent amount out. Help out some folks with a little trusteeship. 
And then in return, I get some I get some good northeast beers, which I usually can't get much access to out here. But yeah, moving on to the second half. Um, I don't know. Dan, pick your poison. We can either talk SU football recruiting or we can talk about a certain divisional game in the NFL last week that I doubt you want to bring up. Uh, yeah, recruiting it is. Let's do that. Let's talk about that. <laughs> All right. So, as anyone who's following SU football is aware, um, the team has been hemorrhaging recruits, but has also been adding recruits. Um, at this point, there's not a whole lot left from um, Scott Schaefer's original class, which uh, had a decent amount of guys, but we've added a bunch um, of guys who may or may not, we think may, based on Baber's pursuit of them, uh, fit Baber's system better. Um, the most recent move was, um, of course, um, Andrew Armstrong from Ohio commits, um, and Taylor Riggins from New York decommits, uh, both linebackers, both playing outside, um, both shifting between two and three stars, um, depending on the recruiting service you read. Um, Dan, your thoughts, do you think that losing Riggins is big on its face? Um, and I know we talked about it a little bit on Slack today. Do you think that uh, this class's large kind of exodus from the Northeast, there's only one Northeast player in the class right now, um, do you think that, that its absence of Northeast players um, is a sign of things to come or just kind of a product of, of the short time frame that the Babers and his staff had to work with? Um, I'd say probably more the latter than the former. Um the Northeast, like, people want to, you know, land all these New York recruits. I know Marone did it a little bit. They're just, like, honestly, aren't, like, outside of a couple spots, New Jersey, parts of Pennsylvania, there's, like, the Northeast is just not a fertile recruiting ground. So um, it's way easier to build uh, connections when you are a coach coming from Bowling Green. Um, you have all of these connections to high schools in Ohio and Illinois and Michigan, it's easier to go to those schools where you know the kids, um, you know who's there, you know there's a, a higher quality of football and um, way more depth in terms of Division One prospects and taking kids from there than finding diamonds in the rough from New York and Massachusetts and Connecticut where you haven't really been um, as a coach. So I think as Babers, you know, starts to coach here and, and establish himself and installs his program, his uh, system, which we've talked about, is going to be very different from the other things that uh, our rival local schools have. Um, I think it'll be very natural for him to reach out to the New York high schools and the Connecticut's and the Massachusetts's and the rest of the schools where we get a couple guys a year, but it's, it's a lot to ask him to build those relationships, you know, in one month and go and be sure that he's getting a quality kid that is going to be able to contribute at the ACC level. So I'm not very concerned. Obviously you'd like to have a big presence in New Jersey, um, the staff didn't really shake out that way, but um, we have, you know, a couple alumni and other people who uh, started it in with the Schaefer regime who will hopefully be still be there. Um, overall, I think he's just trying to build the best class he can in a short period of time. Um, we've seen the struggles, like Schaefer obviously was a lot less of a transition from Marone, but even then, like, a lot of that class left. Um, guys like Gus Edwards, Gus, uh, guys like uh, – uh, names blanking on me, the running back who went to Indiana. Like, oh, that class was decimated. Yeah, like half of the best players left. And I know that's largely the case here, but I think that class is probably shaping up to be better than this one. Um, 
when in terms of what Marone had coming in. Uh, and you still have Moniel, Rex Culpepper, Stu Bradshaw, Jamal Holloway, um, all players that were, you know, the guys who have stuck around are, are pretty quality guys, guys that we really wanted to keep. A lot of them are already on campus. Um, and I, I don't think there's a huge difference between uh, the guys who have decommitted um, and the guys who have replaced them. I think they're all pretty similar players in terms of quality on a national level. And uh, the biggest difference is the style. Like, even on defense, there's a, a, a real shift in what we're trying to do and what the philosophy is. So the, the right players for Schaefer's system, not for better or worse, not saying it's, you know, they're better or worse players, they just aren't going to fit the uh, the system that we have on either side of the ball as well now. So um, I think we just have to trust. I know he's talked about it a lot in the, the few media things he's done, but having, like, the blind faith, I think we just need to trust that um, – Babers is doing the right thing for his program, which he knows a lot more about than we do. And I think we'll all be a lot more excited about things uh, when he has a full year to put together his recruiting boards and go after uh, the players that he's identified early and and hopefully put an exciting product on the field for a year. So I I think we just have to kind of live with what happens this year. I still think there's a decent chance we wind up with some nice players um, because there are so many kids coming to visit the next couple weekends. Um, and hopefully we'll have a nice turnout at the basketball game, which I will be at. I'm excited about that um, this weekend at Georgia Tech. Uh, but overall, I mean, first-year recruiting classes, sometimes they see a big bump, and sometimes, you know, there's adjustments to be made. Um, this is probably more the, the latter. But overall, I don't think it's going to be much of a worse class or a better class or anything than what Schaefer brings in. I think it'll be pretty similar in terms of where the, the ranking shades out. Yeah, you know, I think this is kind of echoing a lot of the conversations that I've had with folks on, on Twitter and on uh, in the comments. It just seems like there's, you know, there's this jaded kind of um, cynicism, and that sounds stupid coming from me to a lot of people, I'm sure, but it, it seems like there's this cynicism toward, you know, any coach at this point, and, and the fact that, that Babers shook things up and, and really kind of made some, some, some shifts um, and, and has changed a lot of this class, I mean... I think some of the kids, it was they were much more dedicated to Schaefer and staff than, than the school, and others, it was just it wasn't a fit, and you know Babers didn't really pursue maybe as hard as those kids felt like they needed to be pursued. And you know what? I'm not gonna I'm not gonna pretend that I was in those meetings and those conversations and everything else. I mean, these things happen, um, and, and they happen anytime there's a coaching turnover. That sometimes when there isn't a coach, coaching turnover. Um, you, know, you mentioned a lot of the kids that are either some of the kids are already on campus. I think you know Culpepper and Neil. And then, you know, a kid that was added late um, by a member of the staff that's not even on the staff anymore uh, might be one of the best players in it, and um, that's Kenny Ruff, um, who seems like a perfect fit um, at the outside linebacker spot. Um, in, in general, it, it just seems like, again, th- this might not be uh, markedly better than, than what Schaefer was, was bringing in um, from a raw numbers standpoint, but it's going to fit. Um, and for anyone who thinks that Baber's going to come in and suddenly just start rating recruiting classes um, you know, up the eastern seaboard and down to Miami and all this other stuff. Like, we offered a ton of kids from Miami. We have still have recruits from the Miami area and from Florida in general. Um, but by and large, the list that he had and, and the guys that he was targeting at Bowling Green, I mean, Bowling Green was doing well enough where he could be looking at these high threes and low fours and, and was looking at these high threes and low fours in the Midwest area. And that's kind of what he's working with. That's what his staff's working with, his guys that he brought over. Um, there's still a lot of names that we could potentially uh, see. I know there hasn't been 
um, an offer or, or visit set up, but I still think Kentrell Moran um, over at Illinois is, is somebody to keep an eye on. I know uh, Reese um, down in uh, Florida, that, that one to me, I feel like if there are doubters left about how this class is shaking out and how it's shifting, picking up Reese, who's a Florida State, um, big on Florida State's board, it seems, if we can grab him, um, I feel like any any sort of doubts left will be gone. I and mean, you can tell me if if I'm wrong there, Dan, because I know that um, I know that one player doesn't make a class, but I feel like what a lot of people are looking for is a surefire four-star kid who's actually going to show up on campus, and we just haven't had that in so long. Yeah, I mean, the day that happens, I think it will be uh, the day that we get a lot of the people turned. I think it is kind of weird the reaction some people have had, though. Like, there's a lot of people who just seem to, you know, be determined to discredit Babers right off the bat. And I don't think anything that's happened has earned that. So I, it might just be fatigue from, you know, the the, the rapid-fire turnover that we haven't re- ever really had with this program before or, you know, the, the, the athletic department in general. Um, so hopefully uh, hopefully we get some good news to wrap up because there, there's not many things that are more annoying uh, as a college football fan, then your fans getting impatient over recruiting stuff when so much of it is a trap shoot that we won't really know the the results of or the future of for four years anyway. Completely fair point, and I would echo those. Um, I know we did this last year. Uh, I figured might as well start now since we have time at the end of the show right now. Um, that'll be different as, as National Signing Day gets a little bit closer, but... Um, a little bracketology action. Um, Dan, completely unprepped. Um, who are your four number one seeds right now? Oh, don't do that to me. Uh, <laughs> let me look. Uh, I think Oklahoma, I think uh, you, you have to have them up. Um, obviously, they lost this week, but who hasn't? Uh, I think they have the best player in the country, or at least one of them. Um, and they just seem like they... They play together pretty well. They're not overwhelmingly talented as a group, but they have, you know, when you have one great guard and a couple other nice complimentary shooters and then some solid uh, interior play like this year, that gets you by. I think North Carolina um, may be the most talented roster overall, at least uh, in terms of depth. Uh, I think they're going to end up winning the ACC, and that'll be worth a lot, although I see them seeing a couple other losses down the stretch. Uh, I think... um, I think Kansas will wind up as a number one as well. I don't know if they'll win the Big 12 for the 85th time in a row, but I think they and Oklahoma will be in a really close battle down the stretch, and I think uh, they'll do enough um, to get one of the four seeds. And last, it's tough. Um, I'm not done with Maryland. I, I feel like Maryland hasn't quite played up to what we've expected. Uh, like they're, They've looked pretty shaky in some games, and they've obviously dropped a few. I just think Melo Trimble is such a dynamic player, and he, you know, is a uh, you know quintessential lead guard. He wants the shot down the stretch, and he's made some some huge plays this year. Um, and I think someone, you know, winning the Big Ten if they do uh, is worth a lot. So I think Maryland uh, right now, but it, there's so many teams that could fill in there. There, but then they rotate every week at this point. You took my damn surprise pick, Dan. I was going with the Terps. I mean, you and I are pretty high on Melo Trimble last year, and, and we're talking about Maryland as a potential Final Four team uh, on this podcast last year. And I think uh, they're probably right slotted in there again, except they're better. Um, 
I'm going to go with the same four, which I know seems weird, uh, considering the fact that this is such an up-and-down season and, and, you know, with no prep. But, yeah, I think Oklahoma and Kansas are, are the class of the Big 12. Obviously, the Big 12 is a very deep league, and it's some it provides for some struggle. Um, but I think that they're, they're your odds-on favorites um, in that league. One of them is going to win it, hopefully. I actually hope it's Oklahoma just because I'm sick and tired of seeing Kansas win all the time. Um, I still think Kansas could end up being the number one seed overall, depending on how that shakes out. Um, I think North Carolina probably wins the ACC um, in impressive fashion in the tournament this year, which uh, which could put them in line to number one seed when all said and done. I mean, Carolina's played some good teams, but they haven't really had to play the full meat of their schedule. Um, straight to schedule-wise, it might just bump them up. Um, and then, yeah, that last, that last number one is going to be Maryland, but I think there's going to be a very small separation between them um, and maybe some of the other teams on that line. Uh, you're probably looking at um, Villanova there. Um, I'd say I'm not going to buy into West Virginia. I think they might fall a little bit. Um, I buy into an Arizona just because Arizona's going to probably win the Pac-12 again. Um, I think a Texas A&M could potentially be in that conversation down the road. Um, and yeah, I mean, if North Carolina happens to not win um, the ACC, perhaps. You know, the conversation revolves around whether it's a Duke or a, a Virginia that, that hasn't dropped too many games um, as another number one. Um, I This is me fully hating on Villanova, too, by the way, but um, they've earned that right. Yeah, I think the one that's kind of fallen, you know, and rightfully so based on, you know, tonight and a couple other games, I, I struggle to see Michigan State not bouncing back. Um, I don't know if they'll do enough to be a number one, but – is anyone going to want to face this Michigan State team in March, even if they have like a couple of ugly losses during the year? I, no, never. I definitely don't. So never. That 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 program is is, is the most aggravating one of all, because it's they're the Spurs of college basketball in in that they coast through the regular season, make sure they get in, um, and, and get in with a decent positioning, and then just go to the Final Four. Yeah, I mean, Valentine is a fantastic player. He missed like uh, four or five games. Um, they haven't looked right since he got back, but you know Izzo's going to have that team playing well. Um, and, and this team's a lot better than the one last year, I think. And last year, obviously, they made a, an unexpected Final Four run. So I would not – I don't. I think they're, they're kind of falling into bad position to win the Big Ten regular season. But um, come March, I mean, it's going to be really hard to pick against them in most of these matchups. Yeah, so looking at overall, like, I mean, since there is so much parity – uh, what team outside of the current top 25 do you think we could see in the Elite Eight? Ooh, uh, I have to go searching. Um, outside of the current top 25. Huh. How about uh, is Notre Dame ranked? Because Notre Dame... Um, they are not. Yeah, they are, they've kind of flown under the radar... Um, they've been playing really well as of late, and I think they have one of the, if not the number one, offensive efficiencies in the country. Uh, and obviously they have kind of a pedigree now after years and years of early flameouts. Um, they have a really nice team. Uh, I'm kind of afraid of them. I think they'll still lose a bunch of games down the stretch because uh, this year, but I could see them being like a 6-7 team and going on a bit of a run because they can really store when they're going. I could buy them. Um, I might have to buy into a team that I'm going to be angry about. Um, I'm going to go Dayton right now. 
just because they've been there. And and I just feel like Dayton just seemingly in the last couple of years just knows how to turn it on um, at the right time. Um, they've they've done pretty well in March the last couple of years, um, including against Syracuse, um, and that's kind of aggravating. But uh, I think that they they stand a chance there. Um, St. Mary's is another interesting one, and I know some of that might be you know going back to the old days about a decade ago when they were uh, kind of chomping at Gonzaga's heels in the West Coast Conference, but. They're another one that just seem uh, well situated, and Valpo too. I mean, I'm I'm kind of harping on the mid majors, uh, but I think this could be a year, uh, year we see a couple of mid majors um, hanging around the Sweet 16, Elite Eight. I mean, we usually see what three or four. Um, I think this might be the year we see you know six or maybe even seven, and maybe see a couple um, heading over to the Elite Eight. Yeah, I think those are pretty good mid major pits, and obviously Monmouth is falling out of the top 25, but. They have a bunch of really legit wins. Um, I also, I'm, I'm, I don't know why I, I, I've seen Oregon play a couple times this year, and uh, they are one of those teams that just runs really hot and cold. But um, they're a pretty fun one when they're playing well. Yeah, I, I think Mon has a great point. Um, they actually racked up a ton of quality wins against teams that go in the tournament. Um, that includes both of LA's uh, basketball teams, probably um, UCLA and USC. So I guess we'll close oddly on this. Um, USC basketball. Dan, do you believe, do you think that Andy Enfield at the end of the day, while it took a little bit longer, um, was the right call? Um, and could USC basketball, you know, really be a factor now with, again, Andy Enfield, the coach, um, somehow um, within the next couple of years or even this year? Um, it looks pretty good so far. I mean, they're, they're what, 15-3, and three, I'm looking now, none of their I mean, none of their losses are bad. They, they lost at Washington by two. That's not a great team, but um, I mean, that's, that's they're a bubble team. Yeah, they're okay. And you know, losing at Washington through the year is not the worst thing. The other two losses, they lost to Monmouth, but they also beat Monmouth because they had one of those weird scheduling twerks where so they played twice. Um, and then they lost to Xavier, who is right now like number five in the country. So they look pretty good. I, I haven't had a chance to really watch them play. Um, I don't know if they really resemble those Florida Gulf Coast teams, but, like, there's no reason why you can't build a pretty successful uh, basketball program at USC. Um, obviously, football is going to be king there for, you know, a good long while, but um, maybe for, for a couple of years now, we've kind of joked about how they should have definitely hired Hopkins instead of Enfield, and we were kind of glad they didn't, but, uh, I mean, Enfield built a really good program at Gulf Coast um, out, of nothing. out of nothing. Like, no one knew what that school was, like, at all. We weren't aware it existed uh, until they did, you know, had one of my favorite tournament wins ever. Um, but uh, USC, obviously, um, probably an easier place to build a pretty relevant program, and and uh, he's recruited fairly well, it seems like, and, and uh, I mean, I, I, again, haven't really had a chance to watch them play, so I don't know if they're dropping, you know, crazy dunks all over the place. It doesn't seem like it, because I don't see a ton of them on, like, Sports Center, but um the Pac-12 is a pretty balanced league, and the fact that they're on top of it's uh, impressive, and they've beaten a couple of the top teams already this year, Arizona, UCLA, et cetera. Yeah, I think the Trojans are an interesting case just because – and the Pac-12 is interesting in general. I think what we're starting to see is um, a league that know they're not the quality of Pac-12 football. Um, I think Pac-12 football is top to bottom the best league in the country um, from a football standpoint, and I've said that for the last three seasons now. Um, but they also fall victim to their own success, I think, in basketball, it's probably about six deep now, which is progress. Um, but you're still looking at some bad programs like Oregon State that just can't seem to, to find a way 
um, to get better. But, you know, you, you look at this USC team, in some ways they do have some similarities to, uh, to a Florida Gulf Coast. They score a ton. I mean, they're averaging almost 85 points a game. They're rebounding really well. They're, you know, top 10 in the country in rebounds per game. Um, they're not playing great defense, but I don't think those Florida Gulf Coast teams really did either. It was just kind of a havoc style where they would just create opportunities, um, and, and that's really where they seem to thrive. Um, yeah, I wasn't sold on Enfield necessarily, and I, I, I hear the chatter. I listen to the, the local talk radio around here, um, and, and it seemed like no one was really buying into USC, even as recently as a couple of weeks ago. But now um, you know, there's a USC team that, that seems like... Um, it doesn't have an amazing resume, but it's beaten some quali- it's beaten a bunch of quality teams, and it hasn't lost anybody bad yet. So I'm I'm very very intrigued by uh, by what this Trojans team could do. I mean, this could be the best Trojans team potentially in our lifetime, uh, outpacing that uh, that OJ Mayo group from what a decade ago or so. And it would just add an interesting wrinkle to the Pac-12. Um, Obviously, about them that a few years ago when it just was a brutal league uh, outside of like Arizona. But um, it'd be nice, you know. I enjoy those late night Pac-12 Bill Walton games, and to have a couple more teams other than Arizona and frustrating UCLA um, be interesting would be nice. Agreed. Um, so Dan, before we uh, close out, anything else we want to talk about Syracuse related? Are we uh, are we are we oranged out? Uh, no, I'm I'm excited. Like I I feel like Monday did a a great deal to reinvigorate people. Um, this team, obviously the two wins before were nice and, you know, beating someone by 30 is nice, but be, winning at Duke and, and really looking like a team that was, you know, just as good as the Blue Devils in a lot of ways. Um, obviously it's not a 100% healthy Blue Devils team, but they're still incredibly talented. Um, I just think that, you know, we really needed a win like that. We hadn't had one in a couple of years. Um, obviously it's been really a long two and a half season. So I know personally, I, I feel like miles better about the orange. Um, and, and just having that kind of excitement level about the team has been missing for a while. Um, obviously it, it was so much fun when they were, you know, they made the final four run and they had the couple one seeds the, the previous few years. So hopefully this is a, you know, I don't expect this team to reach those heights at all. I think this is still a very flawed team. But hopefully we kind of get back to where we were in terms of, like, having this very excited, passionate uh, fan base, which I think kind of went dormant for a few years. And um, I'm luckily uh, actually catching two games up there next week. I'm going up early so I can see the Notre Dame game on Thursday and the Georgia Tech game on Saturday. Uh, And I haven't been to a basketball game at the Dome since uh, we were in the Big East. So I am very excited for that. I'm very, very jealous. I have not seen a Syracuse basketball game at all. Um, since uh, the St. John's game in 2010. So it has been a very long time, but that game did see us crowned as Big East regular season champs. That was a fun one. My last game was the uh, Otto Porter game, so I'd hopefully not like to relive that ever. Yeah, let's uh, let's not do that. I I remember my last game was... I spent the entire game uh, harassing DJ Kennedy. Um... (laughs) To, I was I decided I was gonna be you know I was hell bent on getting floor seats that game I was about three rows back and yeah pretty much harassed Kennedy the entire game uh, with my uh, two roommates from senior year and uh, I think he went like one for ten from the floor that game or something stupid we we of course credit ourselves with it but 
uh, it was definitely a definitely a fun one and definitely a memorable one. You asked like a horribly inefficient shooting night was a, a weird thing for <laughs> DJ, DJ Kennedy. Also fair. <laughs> is kind of his MO. Um, on that note, um, that was Dan. I'm John. Uh, you've been listening to Troy Noons is an absolute podcast. Um, you can rate, review, subscribe over on Blog Talk, on iTunes. And, uh, yeah, hopefully we have a game this weekend and go orange. Go orange. Huge savings on new and previously leased furnishings. That's right, huge savings. At Court Furniture Clearance Center, choose from our wide variety of new and previously leased furniture and decor for your home or office. You'll find sofas from $199.99 and more. Everything in our 9,000-square-foot showroom is Court-certified, guaranteed, and in stock. Ready for delivery or to take home today. Visit our Chantilly Court Furniture Clearance Center at 13946 Lee Jackson Memorial Highway or go online at courtclearancefurniture.com. Mention Radio 20 and get 20% off. At Jared, we know devotion isn't a once-a-year occasion. And once the flowers have wilted and the chocolates have disappeared, you'll still want them to know how much you care. Dare to give a gift that lasts this Valentine's Day with our incredible selection of jewelry. From delicate rose gold to bold black diamonds, Jared has hundreds of pieces under $299 and exclusive collections you won't find anywhere else. Shop online or find a store near you at jared.com and dare to be devoted.